If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to John 14, back to the passage we started with last week. So John 14, starting in verse 15. Just listen as I read, starting verse 15. If you love me, you will follow my commands. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Verse 15, if you love me, you will follow my commandment, my commands. 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. If you love me, you will follow my commands. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Is anyone else feeling uncomfortable? Last week, we talked about how Jesus calls us to do the right next thing as one of the main ways we are stabilized in the midst of turmoil. The disciples are spiraling out of control and they don't know what to do. And Jesus over and over again tells them to do the right thing and to hold on to his promises. That's what brings his peace in the midst of turmoil. But there's a problem. A problem I hinted at the end of my message and the problem of of last week and the problem I think many of us are abundantly aware of after reading and rereading those verses. What's the problem? We don't follow his commands. If that's true, the brutal and bitter pill we need to swallow is that if we aren't following his commandments then we don't love God, at least not the way we're supposed to. By show of hands, as I was reading those verses, how many of you got amped up the more you heard that if you love him, you will follow his commands? How many of you just had a peace that surpasses understanding as you heard that list over and over again that you're thinking, oh man, I'm good, I've got this. How many of you were not pricked by your conscience? My guess is that the answer is none of us who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We hear those verses, if you love me, you will follow my commands. And what comes to mind is our last great failure. The last thing that really demonstrates that Christ commands, 
I'm not loving him enough to actually do it. Or maybe what came to mind wasn't a big failure, but a nagging habit of sin that when that temptation comes calling, we go running. I'd love to say that we go running to Christ, but most often we go running right to that sin. Or maybe you thought of a recent interaction with someone where the love of Christ was not evident in how you treated them. Maybe that was even to this morning on your way here today. Now, I'm not pointing fingers here and, and saying, oh, look at what you've done, because every single one of these three, those categories are things that as I was preparing for this message, I was convicted by. Thinking of my big failures, thinking of my habits of sins, thinking of my interactions with others in which the love of God was not displayed. And if we opened the mic up and just said, well, what, what ways did the Spirit convict you as you're hearing, if you love me, you will follow my commands. If we had the open mic right now, we could be here for a long, long time. So now what? Four times Jesus says that those who love him will follow his commands. And our main takeaway right now is that we don't follow his commands. Kind of a dismal place to start. <laughs> is Christ aware of our struggle? Does he know about the weaknesses of our flesh? Has he accounted for our, our inevitable failure? He's aware, he's, he knows, he's accounted. One of the fascinating elements from last week's passage is what Jesus knows about the disciples he was talking to. Four times he repeats the idea that there's evidence of those who do or do not love him. And he does that all in verse 15, 21, 23, and 24. And then in verse 28, he says this about his disciples. If you had loved me, you would have rejoiced. What is Jesus revealing to his disciples? You don't love me the way you should. Four times he makes the statements of what it should look like, and then he tells them what it is looking like in their lives. Four times to those he knew had failed him and would fail him, he tells them what they are to do. Why would he do that? Here's the first reason. One, because their past did not and would not dictate their future. Their past failures did not mean they would never have future success. He still told them, this is what you are supposed to do. Yeah, I know you've already failed in this. I know you haven't shown the love to me that you should, or you would have rejoiced. But I'm still going to tell you what you need to do moving forward. Two, because in seeing their failure, they would be willing to seek their solution. In recognizing their failure, their inability to love the way they should, their inability to follow the commands that Christ has given, in recognizing that, then they could actually be willing to see the solution that they need. And Christ offers the solution. There is a way to fulfill our purpose and produce fruit, and that way is found in Jesus. That's where our passage is this morning. 
Yes, there's stability in following his commands. Yes, there's stability in holding on to his promises, but there is a way in which that happens, and that way is not found in us. Our big idea that we've already heard once this morning is this. We fulfill our purpose when we produce fruit by being plugged into Jesus. We fulfill our purpose when we produce fruit by being plugged into Jesus. Now, you know, as we've already heard the passage read this morning, that there's going to be a metaphor used in this passage, and the metaphor is the vine and branches. It talks about fruit. Now, we're not really an agrarian, agricultural society anymore. Some of you still enjoy growing plants and and doing all those things, but as far as I know, none of us here make a living by growing plants. The way we we live is by going to the grocery store. But the illustration, the metaphor that Jesus uses for his disciples would have connected for them instantly. And so I'm going to actually use a metaphor for the metaphor. And we might even mix our metaphors throughout, but the reason I want to do that is to help us make the connection that would have been so clear for them. So what do I have here? An extension cord. Now, extension cords have a specific and unique purpose. And an extension cord only fulfills its purpose when it is doing a specific thing. You need two things for this extension cord to work. What are the two things that allow this extension cord to fulfill its purpose? It needs to be plugged in, and it needs to be powering something. If either one of those two things doesn't happen, it's pointless. There's no purpose for it. If this is not plugged into power, then it doesn't matter what's plugged into it. It's not going to produce anything. On the other hand, if it's plugged into power, but it's keeping it all to itself and it's not producing anything, it's still pointless. As we're going through this passage, and, and, you're trying, and you might get lost in the metaphor or not sure what it's exactly saying, I want you to think back, okay, what's the point? There's one purpose. So we're going to go look at that right now. If you're using the handout to take notes, it's not going to be entirely linear. Um, we have through the three different points there. What Jesus does here is very cyclical. He's going to talk about one thing, and then he's going to go to something else, and then he's going to come back. So if you're taking notes, and you're like, man, this really seems like it has to do with point three. It's not point one, point two, point three. All of these are the points. And so as you're taking notes, you, can, you're, you might jump around, and that's okay. But here's where I want us to start. Let's look at the role of Christ and the role of the Father. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Most likely, this discussion is happening on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. What has happened just before this is that they've had an eventful meal. A lot of things have happened. It's kind of thrown the disciples for a loop. And the last thing Jesus says at the end of chapter 14 is he says, let us rise, rise, let us go from here. 
And then it's a little confusing because we go and then the next day he's talking again and, and we're like, well, what's happening? Well, between here at the dinner and then he, he's going and they're most likely, we're not positive, but they're probably walking along and the end they're finishing in the garden. And Jesus is someone that is always looking for illustrations. Throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen Jesus use object lessons to teach something. And so he's walking here, and there's probably plants around them, and he says, I am the true vine. What's this about? Why does he even say, I am the true vine? Why not just say, I am the vine? One of the patterns we have seen in the Gospel of John is that Jesus reveals himself as the true and greater fulfillment of Old Testament promises, Old Testament themes. While it might be strange for us to hear something described as a vine, it wouldn't have been strange for the disciples. That's because the imagery of a vine was used often in the Old Testament. But most often, it was used to describe Israel, and unfortunately, when that happened, it didn't describe a healthy plant. Isaiah 5 says this, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes. Goes on in verse 4, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it, done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. I shall not, it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah and his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Israel was a vine that produced no fruit. It did not fulfill its purpose. But that shouldn't be a surprise to us. On its own, could Israel fulfill its purpose? Could it find the power to produce fruit within itself? Even if everything around them was perfect, even if everything was set up so that they could have everything they needed, could they produce fruit in themselves? Can you think of any other story in the Bible in which someone had everything they needed, but they sought to produce fruit in themselves? In the midst of a garden, in the midst of paradise, all that they have, everything that they need, and yet, where do they look for the power to produce fruit? Themselves. Jesus makes a profound statement because what we need is a better vine, one that could produce true fruit, and this is Jesus. I am the true vine. This is his seventh and final of the predicate I am statements. 
What is Jesus saying? I'm the vine. I'm the one that will lead to true fruit. I'm the one who gives power and life. We also see the role of the father. My father is the vine dresser. The father is the gardener. He's the one that establishes the plan. He's the one that oversees the vine. He's the one that makes the decisions of what needs to be done. So how do the roles of Christ and the Father impact the purpose of the believer? Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Jesus continues with his metaphor. He's the vine, but now he's talking about branches and fruit. We see that there are two categories of branches, those who produce fruit and those who don't. We also see that the father, as the vine dresser or gardener, treats the branches differently. So, so here's the question. Who are the branches? And there's been a lot of discussion, a confusion regarding who the branches are. Because at first it says that uh, every branch in me, well, wait a second. Who are the branches that can be in Christ? Well, then obviously the only branches that can be in Christ, that must be talking about believers but then it says if they don't bear fruit he takes them away and in verse 6 he talks about throwing away the branch and it withers and those branches are gathered and thrown into a into the fire well that doesn't really seem to be describing a believer so what is that talking about so who are these so-called branches. They are those who believe that they are in Christ, but they are not. This has been a theme throughout the Gospel of John that over and over, John is showing what is genuine belief. What does it mean to genuinely be in Christ? All the way back at the very end of chapter 2, there is a group that believed in Jesus, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. They thought, we're in you, but Jesus is saying, no, I'm not in you because I really know what's in your heart. Later in John 6, there are many disciples who leave Jesus, who turn away because his teaching is difficult. They weren't in him. Then in John 8, there's a large group that believes in Jesus, but then the very next thing Jesus says is, if you are truly my disciples, you would abide in my word. Those who are my disciples abide in my word. And it's clear that that group didn't abide in his word because what he says later is, you are not children of my father, you're children of Satan. Is that a description of believers? The most recent example we have of someone who was with Christ, who many would point and say was in Christ, who spent three years walking with Christ, was Judas. Not all, you are clean, but not every one of you. One of you will betray me. One of you, Satan will enter. He wasn't truly in Christ. There was not fruit. 
On the other hand, we see the branches that do produce, cruise, uh, produce fruit, those who truly are in Christ. These are the believers who have been placed into Christ. They are plugged into the true vine. We see this from verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. So what do we learn from this, this verse? That the purpose of the branch is to bear fruit. What is the basis of the decision the father as the gardener makes? How does he make his decision? Where's the fruit? If there's not fruit, then the branch is cut. If there is fruit, the branch is pruned to produce more fruit because that's the purpose. The purpose is to produce fruit. Now, just an aside here, one of the interesting things that we see in this verse is that both categories, both branches, eventually get cut. But the outcome is completely different. One gets cut for destruction while the other gets cut for multiplication. This is our purpose, but what's scary is that we have already discussed at the beginning of this message that producing fruit is not something we're particularly good at. But here's the comfort. First, see the work of the Father. He cares enough about the vine, he cares enough about the branches to ensure that they will produce fruit. He prunes them. He cleans them. He works them so that they can fulfill their purpose. But where does this process begin? How is it even possible to produce fruit in the first place? The process begins with salvation. Look at verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, this doesn't really seem to fit the metaphor that we've been going on. Hey, we're talking about plants and trees and fruit, and then we kind of, going back to what happened in chapter 13 about cleaning, and Jesus washed people's feet, and he told Peter, you already are clean. So, so was this verse maybe pulled from the wrong spot? Why is it talking about here? Well, one of the things is it's a play on words. It's a play on words that we just can't have in English. The word for pruned is the same root of the word for cleaned. You will be pruned to produce more fruit. You already have been pruned. You already have been cleaned. The true pruning, the true cleaning has already happened because of the word I have spoken but there is still pruning and cleaning that needs to happen. What is Jesus describing here? The process of salvation that leads to sanctification. Yes, in salvation, we are already clean. And yet we need the process of pruning that helps us to produce more fruit. It's the same thing that Jesus said to Peter Back in chapter 13, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Wait a second. They're already clean, and yet he's washing their feet. Why? Because we still need continual cleaning. Salvation is our guaranteed position. Sanctification is the process by which our practice matches our position. So here's my position before the Father. I am clean. But my practice, as we've already discussed this morning, doesn't match my position. 
Sanctification is the process in which that comes closer and closer together. It's the work that he will finish. He who began the good work will see it to completion. That's the process of sanctification. So what does this mean for us? Our purpose is not just to be saved. Salvation is the beginning of the process, not the end. The goal, even though your salvation guarantees the grace that will be given to you, even though salvation shows that you will one day be with the Father, that's not the goal. That's an immense comfort and gift. But the goal is to produce fruit. The goal is to be sanctified. The goal is to be holy like he is holy. See, our temptation is to assume the work is finished because we believed in Jesus. I'm good. I've already done the parts that I need to do. I'm done. Oh, we're going to talk about abiding in Christ this morning? I've already done that because I'm a Christian. Now, what's the goal? The goal is to produce fruit. The pruning happens to produce more fruit. Look what Jesus says. Already you are clean. Great. We're done. Let's move on. Already the main pruning has happened, the main cleaning, but there will be more so that we might produce fruit. The greatest tragedy of the fall was the fact that we lost the ability to produce fruit the way we were created. When you read through Genesis, one of the themes that you see over and over is be fruitful. Be fruitful. Produce fruit. But their ability to do that was severely damaged by the fall. They couldn't produce fruit in themselves. This is why we have and need salvation. It restores the ability that was lost. But what good is restoring the ability if we never pursue it? So how does salvation do that? Because through salvation, we are brought into Christ. Salvation is what grafts us into the vine. We were a wild shoot. We are brought in to the true vine. We now are in Christ, and that is the only way to produce fruit. Verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Were you feeling a little demoralized when we went through the list? If you love me, follow my commands. Those who love me, Follow my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my word. If those who do not love me won't keep my word. Man, that's beyond me. He knows. Abide in me, and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Only in Christ can we produce fruit. The problem we have with following his command is that we try to do it in our own strength. It, it, it's, th that would be like... If this extension cord thinks, you know what? I don't always need to be plugged in. 
I can go in and then every once in a while pull out and run over here and plug it in and then I'll run back and plug it in again and just do this thing. It doesn't need to be like a constant thing. Hey, you know what? I've been plugged into this for a long time. I probably have power myself now. Like, have you seen all the things I've produced over here? I think that probably, I'm not sure I need to keep doing this. I think I've gotten beyond that. What would you do with an extension cord that thought that? It's a little weird to personify an extension cord that way. You'd get rid of it. It's pointless. See, we need to recognize our inability. You can't do this. We can't do this. There's a reason we felt like failures when we looked at those verses, because we were trusting in our own strength. We can't. We need to realize our need to remain. Migrant branches and power bank extension cords don't exist. A migrant branch, do you know what that's called? A parasitic weed. Something that goes all over, tries to get what it needs to get out of it to produce its own thing, and then goes on to something else. A power bank extension cord that thinks, you know what? Let's get some power in here, and then I've got the solution. Just plug into ourselves. Like, we've got everything we need here. It doesn't work. It's pointless. So why do I not follow his commands? Because I'm not remaining in Christ. I'm not plugged into him constantly. I'm not abiding. What is this? What does it mean to abide? It's mutual indwelling. I liked what one, uh, one of the study Bibles I looked at said, mutual indwelling is the key to fruitfulness in the believer's life. Mutual indwelling. One of the things we need to realize as we're going through this passage is that there's two sides of this. There is divine sovereignty, but there is also human responsibility. Now, sometimes, depending on where you go, either you're all the way in the camp of human responsibility of like, just work harder, or sometimes we're like, hey, you've got nothing. It's all God. But there's an element where both of those come together. Yes, it is all through the power of Christ, and yet we have a responsibility to respond to that power. Abide in me, and I in you. Two times he says that. He says it in verse 4, then he says it in verse 5. Whoever abides in me, and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit. Mutual indwelling. This is what began with salvation. When we place our faith in Jesus, when we repent and believe his word, he dwells in us and we in turn then must dwell in him. It doesn't just stop at salvation. The branch that is grafted in must remain connected if it wants to fulfill its purpose. That's time. What did, he, what did we see in last week's verse? If you love me, love, not passion. Many people come to Christ and in a moment where they have all that passion of something new, they start doing all of these things because they have a passion for the Lord and they're going to follow all of the commands. How often do we see that just fizzle out? Passion doesn't last. Love does. But love takes time to grow. 
That branch needs time to be nourished in which it is seeking the vine and the vine in in turn is pouring into the branch. Then that love will produce fruit. If you love me, you will follow my commands. Abide in me and I in you. Let this relationship be solidified. The branch must remain connected if it wants to fulfill its purpose. Because there's a warning or a blessing that we see in the next verses. In verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. That's a warning. First of all, it's a warning for humanity, for those who think that they are in Christ, but aren't. There is no such thing as a loss of salvation. That's not what we're talking about here, that those who were in Christ, they were saved, but then they stopped producing fruit, so then God said, all right, you're done, we're, we're cutting you out. No, in, in John 10, Jesus says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. But what is this saying then? A lack of sanctification is often the sign that there was never salvation. It's not saying you're losing your salvation because you're not sanctified. It's saying you weren't saved because you aren't being sanctified. And even though I think that that's the main point, I do think that there is also, though, a challenge here for believers. In Corinthians 3, it says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. The judgment day, that's what it's talking about. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. There is a warning here, even for those who truly are in Christ. Are we abiding? Do we love him? We'll follow his commands. How are we going to do that if we are not abiding in him? We don't have the strength. But we are given an immense opportunity. We have an incredible blessing. It's what was introduced when Pastor Billy preached at the end of his section in John 14. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, see the mutual indwelling again, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's an incredible blessing. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Do you think that the vine dresser, the gardener, do you think the vine desires us to be successful? Yes. He wants to set us up for everything we need, but what is success? See, if we take the second part of this verse and we just say, listen, the Bible says, ask whatever you wish and it will be granted to you. That's what it says. It does say that. But there's a qualifier before that. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. This is how we abide in him. His words abide in us. He is the word. His word is truth. Over and over again throughout the gospel of John so far, he has said, you believe my words and you have received life. How does this happen? Where do we do this? When do we do this? How long? Well, we, where do we learn of, of his words? In his word. 
He's given us his word. When do we do this? Daily. How long does the extension cord need to be plugged in to power something else? All the time. How can we abide in his words if we have no knowledge of his words? For us to truly abide, for us to follow his commands, we have to actually know what those words are, and it's continuously, I have written my word on your heart. I will put it before their eyes. Your word have I hidden on my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, why is this a guarantee? Why does he promise he's going to do what we ask for them, ask of him? Well, if his words abide in us, whose words will we use to make requests? If his word abides in us, whose words will come out of us when it's time to make a request? His words. Have you ever gone to a kid and, and, and you already have something that you want to give them, maybe a nephew, a niece, or maybe a, a child, a, your, one of your children, and you have something that you already have purchased that you want to give them, but you want them to ask for it. And so you start dropping hints. Oh, man, ice cream sure sounds good. Sure hot day. Ice cream. Doesn't ice cream sound good yet? Yeah, it sounds good. Man, if only I had someone that wanted to go get ice cream with me. I want ice cream? You do? Wow! I, you know what? I have ice cream. Let me give that to you. Now, was that their words? No. It was my words given to them. Whose words are we going to use if his word abides in us when it's time to make a request? His words. Do you think he's going to give us words? Oh, do you, do you want ice cream? I do. Tough. You're not getting any. <laughs> I've got it. You don't. No. He gives us the words to ask what he's already willing to provide. So what is the reason we must produce fruit? Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Two purposes that are fulfilled in producing fruit. The first is that the Father is glorified. This is the point of all creation. This is what was broken in the garden. This is what is restored in the vine. We can glorify the Father the way we were meant to glorify him. Not in ourselves, but through the vine. When we produce fruit, we, we fulfill our purpose, but that only happens if we are plugged in to Christ. The Father is glorified. That's why producing fruit is the purpose. It's not just salvation. It's sanctification. That's what we're heading towards. We need to produce fruit. Why? Because that glorifies the Father. But the other purpose is that it, the disciples are revealed. That you bear much fruit, fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Who are we proving this to? Is it God? Is he like, ah, I'm not sure. I don't know. Let's wait. Let's wait and see. Let's see if they've really believed in me. No, because we have no strength. How are we going to draw from that strength if he doesn't already know that we're plugged into him? People we are revealing it to is ourselves and to others. This is the test for yourself. Hey, am I actually in Christ? Where's the fruit? 
But there's an evangelistic element to this passage as well. We're supposed to reveal this fruit to others. Hey, the vine works. How are people going to know about the vine when in the last passage he's just told us the vine is leaving? Well, what are branches supposed to look like? The vine. But you can have a branch that looks like the vine, and yet it's not going to point to Christ if both are dead. If the vine is dead, so are the branches. They look the same, but that doesn't point anyone to Jesus. But if the, vine, if the branch is producing fruit, what does that reveal about the vine? If all I can see is a branch, but the branch is vibrant, the branch is producing fruit, what do I know about the vine? The vine is healthy. The vine gives life. The vine is true. That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Two purposes. That we reveal the true disciples, that we prove that to be true, that we glorify the Father. Then Christ gives the appeal. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. It's guaranteed. I have loved you. Even though we've already gone and seen that we don't love him, he loves us. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We've seen over and over Christ say, this, I'm doing this because I love the Father. The, I am doing these things because the Father loves me. We abide in each other. The mutual indwelling that we want to emulate is the love between the Father and the Son. The vine does not hate the branches. The gardener does not hate the branches. Even though it might be painful at times, it might be counter to our desires, the vine knows what we need. The vine dresser knows what needs to be pruned. The vine knows that when we fulfill our purpose, when we produce fruit, that is what gives us the fulfillment we desire. The vine loves us. See, the problem is that many things seek to woo us away from the vine. They will claim that they love you more. They will claim that you will never have to be pruned again. They will claim that you don't have to just labor at producing fruit. You can just sit back and enjoy the sunshine. Keep the power for yourself. Why give it into fruit that someone else will eat? But those things will not lead you to the fulfillment and peace. They will lead you to shame, guilt, and destruction. Jesus calls us to abide in his love. What he claims he truly offers. So how do we abide? By keeping his commands. How do we know those commands? By knowing his word. How do we know his word? Because he has given it to us and we have believed in him so that it is written on our hearts. And this is the fruit that nourishes the branch. See, the thing that we think is that all the branch ever does is give, 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 give. Then someone else comes, takes it away, and it's for their enjoyment. It's not how it works. Producing fruit strengthens the branch. Producing fruit nourishes the branch. That doesn't seem to make sense, but it's true. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. 
Healthy branches do not begrudge the vine. Healthy branches know that fulfilling their purpose actually provides joy. Producing fruit produces joy to the full. This doesn't make sense on a human level. On a human level, we think about, no, that's just sacrifice. That's just give, 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 give. What do I get? Joy. What's interesting is in these passages from 13 through here, Jesus has already promised a few different things. At the very beginning, he says, um, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. He provides love. Last week's passage, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. He provides peace. And now we see here, he provides joy. Love, peace, joy. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, joy. He's already provided the Spirit. This is the power that we receive when we are plugged into Christ. We receive the Spirit. That's what he said in last week's passage. I'm going to provide love. You will abide in my love. I'm going to provide peace. I'm going to provide joy. Yes, I know that there's going to be some hard elements of trying and striving to produce that fruit. But when you do, you in turn will receive a fruit. You will receive joy. So what is this fruit that we're called to produce? Because we keep on talking about this fruit, but what exactly is he talking about? Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Why is that the fruit? What we've been talking about is we want to show that we love God. If I want to show love to my wife, I'm not going to go over and show love to Carl. Hey, Carl, let me, let me, I really want to show Hannah how much I love you. Do you want to go out for dinner? Hannah, doesn't that demonstrate my love for you? I'm taking Carl out. Wait, wait. We're supposed to demonstrate our love for Jesus, and then it says, this is my commandment that you love one another. Why is that the fruit? Because how we love others is how we demonstrate our love for God. Love God, love others. Do you want to love God? You have to love others. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. That's the command. What's interesting is that we went from plural to singular. You will abide in me when you keep my commandments, plural. And yet now all he says, one command. This is what Paul talks about. Look, I can do all these things, but if I don't have love, what do I have? Nothing. This is the fruit that should be being produced. You can have lots of other fruit, but if it's not also having love, the fruit are rotten. If there's not love inside those fruit, the fruit are rotten. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. There's an explanation. He tells us what the quality of the fruit. Hey, this is the fruit. It's love. But let me explain the quality of this fruit. It's love like me. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, um, 
<coughs> we're reading from the ESV, and one of the things the ESV does is often if there's a verse that's very well known that people have memorized, they try to keep it in a very similar format to how it's been. But realistically, that's an awkward sentence. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends, so let's just rearrange it. No one has greater love than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. No one has greater love than this. No greater example than this for love. Do you want to know what love is? Do you want to understand what this looks like? It's self-sacrifice. That you love one another as I have loved you. How have I loved you? I've given my life for my friends. That's the example. This is the type of love required. Self-sacrificing love. It is far more than words. It's not just telling someone you love them. It's showing them. It's being willing to sacrifice everything for them. You are demonstrating that you are a friend to them. Now, there might be an element here where we can think of the Romans passage and we're like, well, wait, but Jesus died for his enemies. That's true. These are not contradictory. What he's demonstrating here is that he is being a friend to us even when we were not friends to him. I am being a friend to you because I'm willing to die for you. And he did die for us. And then he says this, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now this is not what, what we could get wrong with this. The easy misinterpretation is saying, oh wait, this is how we be earn his friendship. So Jesus is reserving to be, show, ah, I'll treat you like a friend. He's holding that back until I follow his commands. That's works salvation. That's not what this is saying. He's already demonstrated that he's a friend to us. How has he demonstrated his friendship to us? He died for us. There's no greater example. But are we friends to him? Do we really love him if we don't love the things he loves? Are we really his friends when we do all the things that hurt him? You are my friends if you do what I command you. I've already shown you how I'm your friend. How will you show me that you're my friend? There's an invitation to participate. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. No, the servant just, hey, you, I'm going to tell you exactly what to do. You just do that. You, you just follow these things. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father. I have made known to you. Hey, come here. I want to show you what I'm doing. I want to show you my plan. I want you to, to latch on to this so that we can do this together. I'm not just telling you these things. No, we're friends, and you're doing these things not because, well, it was a commandment. I have told No, you're doing this because you're my friend, because you want to be part of this. But the guarantee, what, what proves that this is not something that starts with us and that we earn his friendship is in the next verse. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. We can't produce this fruit. We don't follow commands to then earn his friendship. We reveal our friendship when we follow his commands. You did not choose me. Go back to where we started. If you love me, you will follow my commands. But I can't. It's okay. I know, but I chose you. 
I know, and I have appointed you. I know, and I am going to produce the power. I am going to provide the power you need. This is the immense comfort. He will sustain us. He will hold us fast. If we are truly in him, he doesn't let us go. But here's the mission. We are appointed for a purpose. I chose you salvation and I appointed you sanctification. I'm giving you a mission that you should go, that you should bear fruit, that your fruit may abide, that it may remain. This is again pointing to that evangelistic purpose. We could have all, so many of the elements of the vine in heaven. The work will be complete. We will produce the fruit we're supposed to. And yet we're not there. We're here because we have a purpose right now. That you should go and bear fruit. That your fruit should abide. We are meant to reveal Christ. We are the representation of the vine on this earth. If the branches don't look like the vine, if the fruit is not sweet, who will seek the vine? The fruit will not abide. It will be thrown away because it is rotten. No one likes eating rotten fruit. Abide in him. These things I command you so that you will love one another. That's the fruit. Hey, do you love me? Love others. Hey, are, are, you, are you plugged into me? Show that by loving others. Hey, did I choose you? Good, I gave you a purpose as well. Love others. If you love me, you will follow my commands. The only way that is possible is if we are in Christ. If you're here this morning and you're thinking that you're going to do these things on your own, you're going to find failure, you're going to find guilt, you're going to find shame, you're going to find destruction. That's what I was finding when I was trying to do these things on my own. Our only hope is abiding in Christ. We do that by abiding the mutual indwelling, allowing him to abide in us and us in him. That begins with salvation when we place our faith in him. It continues as we hold, cling and abide in his word. The result of that is that it abide, we abide in his commandments, abide in his love, and we receive joy. The Father is glorified. The disciples are proven who they are. The fruit abides. Father, we thank you that this is not on us, that you have a plan, that, Lord, you revealed the true vine. Even from the beginning of the earth, when the garden was disrupted, when the fruitfulness that you had designed was broken because of sin, when rot crept in, you had a true vine that was coming. That, Lord, you took broken and dead branches and grafted them back into something that provides life. Lord, I pray that, that what we would realize is that the only way we can do this is through Christ. All we have is Christ. The strength to follow your commands could never come from us, but we are given the ability, not in ourselves, but because you chose us. So Lord, I pray that we would submit to you, that we would fulfill our purpose by producing fruit 
because we are plugged into you continuously. Pray this in your name. Amen.